I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Parallax Views listeners, on this edition of the program, we offer a sobering conversation about the crisis in Gaza, this time focusing on the mental health challenges faced by the people of the Gaza Strip. Joining us to do that is Palestinian clinical neuropsychiatrist and director general of the Gaza Community Mental Health Program, Dr. Yasser Abu Jaima. It's a rather sobering, it's a conversation about a heartbreaking topic, but I do believe it is important. So, without any further ado, Dr. Yasser Abu Jaima of the Gaza Community Mental Health Program. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very excited to be speaking with, Dr. Yasur Abu Jama of the Gaza Community Mental Health Program. How are you doing today? Thank you very much, and uh, good morning, afternoon, and evening to uh, your audience and to you, yourself. So if you could, uh, to start out, maybe you could talk a little bit about your background and also uh, the background you could give us on the Gaza Community Mental Health Program, uh, namely what it is, how it came to be, uh, just some of that basic background information. Yeah, okay. My, my name is uh, Yasser Abu Jama. I'm a Palestinian psychiatrist. Received my basic medical education in um, Lithuania. 
and then got the masters from the UK. And I'm uh, working in Gaza since the year 2000. And uh, currently I work as the director of the Gaza Community Mental Health Program since uh, the year 2014. Uh, Gaza Community Mental Health Program is uh, a non-profit uh, uh, civil society organization that was established in the year 1990. It was established by the renowned uh, psychiatrist and the human rights activist, Dr. Yad Sarraj. And then in the uh, uh, 80s, it was the only establishment that offers comprehensive mental health services to the Palestinian people. In the 80s, there was no other uh, organization uh, offering mental health services besides the psychiatric hospital. And then he noticed that there is a need to provide the service to uh, families, to children who were affected by the violence during the first intifada by the Israeli continuous aggression. So he thought of establishing this uh, organization. We operate, uh, uh, our approach is a biopsychosocial one. We have multidisciplinary teams composed of uh, not only physicians, but also social workers, psychologists, and psychiatric nurses. Um, currently, uh, we are operating uh, in three, uh, through three community centers trying to cover as much as of Gaza Strip. One is in Gaza City, the second one is in Khan Yunis in the north, the south, and the third one is in Deir al-Balah. We continue to offer comprehensive mental health services that includes not only treatment, but also uh, rehabilitation. Uh, we also have a very nice uh, training program, some research activities, and of course, we are interested in public awareness raising for issues related to mental health and to combat stigma and to make sure that people are aware of uh, mental health issues that they might face. So if you could, uh, just for listeners, I, I have a lot of listeners that are interested in what is happening in Gaza, and I, I think it's terrible what we've seen over the years. But for listeners that may be new to the topic, because I always have new listeners, how, how do you maybe explain the situation in Gaza uh, to people that are outside of, it's outside of their sort of vision just because the, the media here in the U.S. at least uh, doesn't, I think, always cover it enough. So how do you sort of look at what, what's going on and explain it to people? How do you raise public awareness about it in a way? Yeah, well, uh, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a, a complex issue and it's really hard to imagine especially when we speak in the 21st century nowadays, you know, to understand that there is still an ongoing occupation. While we are all as international community now stand in solidarity with the Ukraine, for example, but still there is another occupation that is ongoing somewhere else in the world, which is in the Middle East. You know, uh, Gaza Strip is under occupation since, since the year 1967. And uh, uh, the issue is that uh, 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 prior to that occupation between the years 48 uh, and uh, 67, there were many people who were uprooted from their lands even prior to 48 because uh, uh, they were uprooted from their villages, their uh, cities in historical Palestine, and they had to move into uh, different uh, geographical areas, including some of them who 
came to seek refuge in uh, in Gaza Strip. Now, Gaza Strip is a very small geographical area. It's about, I think, 25 miles in length and about 12 to 14 miles in, in width. Uh, the Currently, the population in Gaza Strip is 2.1 million people. We have uh, one of the highest density population in the world, I think more than 13,000 people per square mile. It's already overcrowded. Uh, Two-thirds of the uh, inhabitants are uh, Palestinian refugees who were uprooted from their home um, uh, villages and cities, and now they are living uh, in Gaza uh, uh, Strip. So, so it's under occupation since the year 1967, uh, when Israel uh, continued to occupy, uh, occupied uh, uh, West Bank, uh, East Jerusalem, and uh, Gaza Strip. And since then, uh, uh, we had the first intifada, the Palestinians struggled to end the occupation, uh, as well known in any place, people who struggle against occupation, people uh, need to live in dignity and peace and to enjoy their freedom, you know. So uh, th there was the first intifada in the 80s, there was the second intifada that began in the year 2000, and uh, now Gaza Strip is under uh, blockade since the year 2007. Uh, during those 15 years of blockade, unfortunately, we were also exposed to uh, four large-scale operations. We had another one about two weeks ago. It was a short one, three-day attack. Some people consider it the fifth. Some people not consider it a major one. But from the psychological point of view, it, it's also another major um, uh, attack. So there are different uh, uh, things that are important, like the you know the economy under occupation is all the time. It's a big uh, uh, hassle. It's a big difficulty. Uh, Gaza Strip now uh, more than fifty three percent of the population live under poverty, uh, thirty three under deep poverty, and when we speak about like you know thirty three percent living under deep poverty, we speak about more than seven hundred thousand people, including three hundred fifty thousand children. About half of the uh, population in Gaza Strip, I think forty eight percent, are children below the age of um, uh, eighteen. Uh, so when you speak about 350,000 children who need their, you know, to go to schools, need proper clothing, they need uh, some good stationery, um, uh, they live under deep poverty, which means that they are lacking really uh, means to just uh, go on with their lives, just to grow up normally, just to have normal needed food, needed uh, clothing, etc., uh, uh, etc. Et so the conditions are really dire, the socioeconomic conditions. Unemployment rate is among the highest in the world. Now it's it, it, it really, uh, it's, it's around 46%. It reached during COVID something like 53, 54%. And it's unfortunately the highest among the young people below the age of 30. So imagine, you know, young people who are really uh, full of enthusiasm. They should be ambitious. They should be thinking about their future, thinking about, uh, how to have a life, to have job, etc., etc. They will be struck with the reality of um, like seven out of of ten young people below the age of thirty are unemployed, and there are no chances for them to find employment. If if you could as well, 
you mentioned the, the using the sort of uh, biopsychosocial model. Maybe you could explain what that is for my listeners and how you apply it to the situation in, in Gaza and your um, patients. Thank you. This is a very important question. You know, uh, mental health is uh, uh, is one of the areas of uh, health when we speak generally, which means that the biological aspects or the medical aspects, for example, hereditary, for example, uh, uh, the use of medication, for example, to have a problem with the neurotransmitter, etc., etc., is an important part or aspect that we all agree upon. For example, if someone has... Uh, this kind of disorder, then there is like schizophrenia, for example. Then there is a need to take medication. There might be a need for hospitalization. It's it's a, a clear medical case, if you could say. But also, this is not uh, enough, you know. Uh, the, uh, the, there are more important and contributing factors to mental health well-being in a place like Palestine, which is the... Uh, 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 the psychological conditions, the psychological uh, stressors, and the uh, 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 environmental area around the, the people. Uh, I can give you a, uh, a coupling of examples. You know, uh, during the first Intifada, and now uh, we, when the idea of establishing GCHP began, and as now what happens a lot in the West Bank, you know, you see the army, the Israeli occupation army gets into Palestinian cities raid Palestinian houses at sometimes midnight, 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning. They sometimes arrest the father. They sometimes arrest the elderly brother. They sometimes terrorize. They usually terrorize the whole family. And uh, children are really freaked out when things like that happen. Imagine being sleeping and something like that happens. You know, what would be your, your feelings? Uh, or, for example, the uh, hearing the uh, uh, bullets that are shocked every now and then. So the question is, this kind of environment is a very stressful environment. It's a traumatizing, it causes a lot of traumas to the children and to their parents. Now the question is, we cannot uh, tell those young people, for example, children, that I will give you medication and you will be okay. We need to, to work them out. You need to allow them to get rid of these uh, traumatic experiences or at least be able to uh, process them and get rid of the emotions that are uh, accompanying such uh, events. And uh, if, if there is a trauma or, or something like that, move on with uh, with your life. Receive the needed treatment or counseling if there is no illness and go on with your life. Now, this is the important, the other important aspect, which is the psychological aspect and the uh, social aspect, the society, how is the society. Another good example, for example, if we speak about um, um, now when, when, when we have large scale operations, sometimes children, uh, not sometimes, but, but usually children, when they hear the bombardment, they, they start to uh, get uh, uh, horrified. So they sometimes scream. When they go to sleep, they find the problems in going to sleep. And then sometimes during or after the attacks, they would wake up. Uh, frightened in the middle of the night, they will start screaming. This is something that we call night uh, terrors. The child will not remember really any dream or something like that, but he will wake up in the middle of the night frightened. You, know. you need to wake him up, then calm the child down, and then send the child back to sleep. So uh, 
you cannot really um, improve the situation of the children without involving their parents. You know, it's important to work with the parents. It's important to make them understand what's really wrong with the child. Another very repetitive issue is, you know, uh, especially for children like the age six or seven or eight and then maybe the age 10, 11, is bedwetting, you know. They, they uh, you know, they, they have uh, uh, sometimes symptoms that appear at the end of a crisis or during a crisis or later on. And the issue is that uh, they wake up in the morning with their uh, bed uh, wet, basically, you know. And after doing all the uh, medical examinations, testing, et cetera, et cetera, it appears that nothing organic or nothing that is medical uh, or to the biological aspect, if you could see. And then we look when that happened, what was the scenario, how things started, and we just uh, we are able to know that this happened in relation to a traumatic event. And then you need to apply or to work on both uh, uh, issues. The issue of training the child how to uh, uh, become clean again in one hand, but on the other hand, the issue of working on treating the, uh, the traumatic event, allowing the child to uh, uh, speak up, you know, of his fears or her fears, uh, and to make that family understand what is really wrong, you know. So, so the uh, this triage or these three aspects of biopsychosocial is all the time very important, and it's important for the successful of a therapeutic intervention. You need to keep the three aspects in, in your mind in order to uh, have good, uh, not only uh, assessment plan but also intervention. So with, with regards to the children, you have these issues uh, like dealing with the trauma uh, of occupation and, and just conflict. So how does poverty play into, I, I mean, this seems like it, it, it's a mental health crisis. So what, what are the ways that poverty and uh, trauma interact with each other when it comes to uh, the mental health crisis in Gaza? Okay, so I can begin uh, with referring to uh, uh, a, re a report that was issue issued by saying the Children's International Organization that uh, uh, tries to provide help to children, especially in uh, uh, conflict areas. Uh, Save the Children issued uh, uh, a report that is called Trapped, the impact of 15 years of looking on the mental health uh, of Gaza's children. Uh, I usually pick two or three key findings and speak about. Uh, here, I would like to draw the attention of two aspects. One is the key findings related to the children. You know. Uh, by the way, on the background, let's keep in mind that uh, the most recent attacks happened about two weeks ago and continued for a few days. However, the ones that were huge attacks prior to them were in May 2021. So in less than uh, 16 months, if I could say, we had another attack that reminded children of what really happened, reminded not only children, but the whole society. So the, the research findings that was conducted in, in, in um, uh, March, April 2022, uh, say, like children, 
Palestinian children in Gaza are feeling less safe when away from their parents. We do not speak about children who are three or four. No, we speak about young adolescents, you know, like 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. And 90% they feel safe when they are away from their parents, less safe. And this figure was 60% in 2018. So imagine it rose from 60% in 2018 to 90% in 2021, uh, 2022. Uh, and uh, they have high levels of emotional distress. It became 80% in 2022, and it was 55% in 2018. So what happened between 2018 and 2022? Two factors. One is the COVID-19 crisis that hit Gaza Strip, uh, causing uh, a blockade on top of the blockade that was caused by the occupation. That we added social distancing with all what it brought to burdens, including with uh, economic or, so, or psychological um, burdens on the shoulders of the community, in addition to the 2021 uh, May uh, attacks. And this is one aspect. So the children uh, are still afraid uh, and they are still distressed emotionally. Now, uh, coming to your uh, question about economy, when we look at caregivers, you know, caregivers are also experiencing higher levels of emotional distress, with 96% reporting feeling unhappy or constantly anxious. 96%. They are either unhappy or constantly uh, anxious. Now, there is another important uh, figure. It says that uh, nearly two-thirds or 63% of caregivers feel they are not useful, and 61% reported an inability to overcome difficulties. Okay, what do we mean by uh, difficulties? One of the main um, uh, things that my colleagues report in practice, you know, and that we felt ourselves during that tax, for example, May 11 day attack, that there is nothing that you can do in order to make your child feel safe. You know, when you hear the loud sound bombardment and those sounds that sometimes continue for 10 minutes and happen frequently during the day and night, actually, we don't have shelters, you know. What usually pe people do is that you look for a place that is that doesn't have a window, for example. It could be the corridor. It could be the bathroom, by the way. You can you see many families who reported that during that tax, we spent most, most of our time in the in the bathroom. Why? Because they would feel it's a little bit more or less safer than any other place. And the sounds are lesser than any other place. So imagine you feel that you are incapable of providing the feeling of safety and security to your child, you know. Now, you feel like, you know, you are, how to say, there is nothing in your hand that you can do. You are absolutely helpless, you know. You cannot help yourself, you cannot help the, the, the others. Now, if you add to that, again, that the poverty rate is 53% in Gaza Strip, so you imagine that half of the parents already feel that they are not capable of providing their children with the needed basic things because uh, due to poverty. So so again, I cannot protect the child and also I cannot make the child feel uh, safe. And on average, we have five children per family in Gaza Strip. So you can imagine how difficult things for parents and how difficult things for anyone 
who's a parent for a child of two or three or four that I have nothing in hand that I could uh, do. So, so this combination of feeling uh, uh, that I'm helpless or useless, that the economic conditions are not improving, that I have a family to, uh, that I am responsible to, also open the gate for the feeling of hopelessness. You know, there is no hope in the future. Things are getting only worse and worse. And this is a really very serious uh, combination. You feel you, you live in poor conditions and you feel hopeless. Yeah, I, I was just going to add to that. It sounds like, you know, if you were a parent in Gaza, it sounds like you could end up feeling like, you know, what what, what future is there uh, for my child if, if there's unemployment rates and, and things of that nature? There is there that sense sometimes where you have to work through with parents this feeling of helplessness and how, how do you help people work through that? Well, you know, uh, there, there are many anecdotes that happen at the end of each academic year, like in uh, in uh, late uh, June, early July, when uh, our children finish their secondary school, you know, uh, or the 12th grade. The next step is to go to the university to join one of the faculties. And here a lot of jokes begin. It's not jokes, actually. It's it's really, uh, how to say, a reflection of the reality that Gazans did. So some of the uh, those young people will say they are usually 17 or 18, about that age. Uh, why should we go to the university? Because we see either our parents, one of them or both, or our elder siblings who have finished their education they are graduates of one of schools or the other. However, they are not able to find jobs. Why should we go that uh, uh, route? And uh, we see uh, more uh, boys not into education. You know, I think mostly because of this very pessimistic view. Uh, and more, uh, however, with with girls things are a little bit better. You know? So if you go to universities in general, you see a lot of girls, girls joining the university rather than uh, boys. This is in, uh, in one hand. The other hand, boys might find, uh, uh, how to say, I might think of some other uh, things, like uh, some of them will think about it's better to leave Gaza to try to migrate. You know, In the year 2018, we had big, really uh, unfortunate catastrophes when uh, young people were trying to uh, uh, migrate through the sea, through boats, you know, to go to Greece. Many of them were really uh, drowned in the, in, in the sea, and a lot of them until now, we don't really know what happened to them. Their parents do not know, their families do not know what happened uh, uh, to them. What, what parents usually do is a stress on the importance of education, because uh, in a place like Gaza Strip or Palestine, you know, it's among the highest education levels in the Middle East, you know, the number of uh, uh, literate people who have finished a, a bachelor degree or even if you look at the master's or even PhDs. So we try all the time to, to make our children uh, think positively about going to a faculty. And then, um, you know, it's a, it's a well-educated society. People know that uh, hopefully the occupation is going to end hopefully soon. And then the only thing that will help you is if, if you have the good education that will enable you to be productive 
and constructive in your society. And I can give you uh, one example. Uh, on, on average, look, we have about, uh, in Gaza Strip, I said we have about 1 million children, you know, 2.148% of them are uh, children, so about 1 million children. Those, uh, among those, I think there are about uh, 520,000 children who go to schools, whether honorable schools or ministry of education schools, because refugees go to honorable schools. Usually we have 50, 45 to 50 children per class. Usually schools operate in two shifts. And this is another burden on the family, another burden on the children, another burden on the mothers. So one shift will be from 7 until 11.30, something like that, and the other one will be from about 11.45 or 12 until 4.30 or something like like that. Uh, so uh, this is a very crowded uh, class. And we have thousands of uh, graduates are graduates of uh, uh, psychology, graduates of sociology, graduates of mathematics, graduates of education, etc., etc., etc. If we have the resources, if we are capable of using our own resources, then immediately we will be able to double at least the number, the amount of schools, and find jobs for at least another twenty-five thousand people. See, so so uh, if we are capable of using our own resources then things will shift dramatically, you know. So uh, th that's why, and uh, uh, again, parents are usually, uh, let me say, keeping the, uh, how to say, pushing their children towards becoming better children. And for any parent to have a, a better child, which means that a child who is going to school, who is doing well, well at school, who finishes the uh, uh, education and at least go to college and finish uh, and get his bachelor degree or her bachelor degree. That's the minimal that parents think of in, uh, in Gaza. The difficulty associated with this is the economic conditions. Unfortunately, the economic conditions uh, is now felt as a big barrier to a lot of young people who are interested into going to university. We don't have, unfortunately, about public universities in Gaza. They are all private or semi-governmental. So uh, anyone needs to pay the fee. And the fee is uh, uh, is not a cheap one, especially for an employed father, especially for, for, for a family of five children you who know, have two who need to go to the university. So there is a the, the poverty really is uh, playing a heavy toll on the capacity or the ability of uh, young people to go to universities. You mentioned there uh, that there's mothers and fathers, there's uh, female students and male students, and and that sort of raises the question for me of uh, what are the differences in the challenge fa challenge is faced uh, or even how men deal with these challenges and, and how women deal with these challenges? What, what are the differences in, in boys and girls uh, when it comes to how they deal with these challenges in Gaza? Life is a tough one in Gaza, you know, and it's tough for both parents. One of the issues that we have is electricity and power supply. And now we uh, enjoy 
the power supply of having the power for eight hours on, and then we lose it for eight hours. So it's, it's like alternating between eight hours on and eight hours off. This is the best supply that we have maybe in 10 years, you know, because it got a lot worse than that, sometimes for hours during the whole day. So, um, which means that uh, a mother, for example, will need to program herself, you know, the things that will need electricity should be planned in certain times when there is power. You know. So, if uh, she needs to wash her uh, son's clothes or daughter's clothes for the school because she forgot something, you know, forgot uh, to do it, or because they have only one uh, dress for the school and they came back today from the school and it's really uh, dirty, then she should wait until the power is on and do that work. And that could be like 10 or 11 p.m. in the uh, in the evening. Uh, women need to wake up with parents at like 6 because they need to prepare their first group of children to go to schools, the morning shift, you know. At uh, 11, they start preparing the second shift to go to schools. At noon, the first uh, 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 group of children is back. They have to make sure that they eat well, they have lunch, etc. In the afternoon at like 4.30 or 5 p.m., the second shift of school comes. And in between those, the parents, they have to find time in order to feed uh, themselves, you know. If the father is working, then this is another burden. She has to find the time for, for him at, uh, to, to be able to, you know, help him with the, with, the, with the food. Now, this is if the father is working and the mother is not working. And if the, they are both not working, then the father, you know, has to think day and night, how can I provide two shekels for this child, two shekels for the other child, because they need to go to the school, they need to go through using transportation. If they have to walk, then they are going to walk a long distance. Uh, are they going to buy anything at school? What should I do uh, regarding that? How I'm going to pay the electricity bill? How I'm going to pay the water bill, etc., etc., etc. Okay, you have a child at university, and this is a long distance to travel. You need more uh, money. So the uh, managing the house issues usually fall on the uh, shoulders of the mothers, you know. Uh, managing the financial issues is on the uh, father's shoulders. We are, uh, although we have uh, women and men working, but their numbers is generally low, you know, we speak about the unemployment rate. Unemployment rate when it comes to women, it's a lot more than when it comes to men. Uh, so uh, uh, the economic burden because this is a, a male-dominated society, although, again, many women work, but the idea is that he should be more concerned with, you know, uh, as a breadwinner, you know, while she should me should more take care of the uh, uh, family. Now, previously, like when we, we could speak 10 years ago, 15 years ago, in extended families, you'll find, like, you know, the grandfather, the grandmother, then you have about five or six siblings, you know, and they have their children, okay? So you'll find one working, the other is not working, the third one is is, is working in, uh, uh, for example, at Honorwa or working at uh, construction business or working in 
uh, at uh, governmental work. So they would help each other as an extended family. But nowadays, when you have unemployment rate that reaches you know 53%, and, and it's really uh, um, uh, a lot difficult. So, so each one has his own share of uh, troubles. When it comes to boys and uh, and uh, girls, uh, they are very clever, you know. They they see the fear in your eyes as a father, you know. They see the uh, uh, how to say the hardship when they talk when we talk about you know uh, life in general, and they know that their parents sometimes are today they have some money, maybe they don't have today some money. They know that the father is trying to find someone who could lend him some money, you know, or where he could borrow some money. Uh, they know, for example, that uh, they have bought the groceries, but they haven't paid, you know. So uh, they live one way or the other through these difficulties. And usually the students or the children, uh, mostly they try to uh, uh, struggle. Their own struggle is to perform well at school, you know. They know that it's hard for them to maintain going to schools. They know that the parents are really doing a lot of hard work in order to uh, support them go to school. So the children try to respond in a very positive way, which is being excellent at schools, performing well at schools, and doing their best, and making their parents proud, as as we can uh, say. That's why we, uh, we, we say that our children usually wear their best clothes in two occasions. One is the Eids, of course, or the feasts. We have two uh, religious feasts. Uh, and the second uh, uh, issue or the second uh, uh, feast is when they go to bring their certificates at the end of the academic year because they usually get their marks in, in, on papers. So they go well-dressed, you know. They get their papers and they get back to their parents showing here is what we have uh, done and that plays a big important uh, role in the child mentality. You know, children, they understand that the joy that they bring to their parents when they perform well, they see the disappointment in their parents' eyes when they are not doing well. And I think girls are more sensitive to that. They are more clever when it comes to these kinds of emotions, and they really try harder than, than boys, uh, to be honest. They try harder than boys, and they perform better not only as children, but also when they go to universities. One question I had, and I, I hope I can word this well in a way that is um, thoughtful, but I guess what is the psychological impact of essentially you have an occupational force in, in Gaza that has been occupying for years now, and you know it's it's extremely militarized. What is the psychological impact of a sort of heavily militarized occupational force sort of looming over uh, the people yeah. of Gaza the way the way this occupation has done? Yeah. Well, you know, we we are exposed to different uh, difficulties. You know, uh, socioeconomic conditions and uh, if I could say military attacks. That happened during the larger scale operation, military operations, blockade, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We usually speak about generally, let me say, two issues. One is the trauma-related uh, difficulties, could be post-traumatic stress disorder, could be anxiety disorders, could be something like that, 
or things associated with the losses, you know, the loss of property, the losses of beloved ones, the deep, severe, poor economic conditions. So speak about depression. And these two, whether anxieties or depression, are the most uh, common cases that we see in our community centers, you know, uh, among adults. Uh, this is in, in, in one that when we speak about, you know, how that might affect the psychological implications of the individuals. However, at the collective level, you know, which is another very important issue, you know, there is something that is called collective trauma when, when the whole population are exposed to one uh, disaster, you know. Uh, I can give you two examples, like when you hear about uh, uh, a tornado that attacks one state, for example, okay, like what happened if I could say in New Orleans, if I'm not mistaken, a few years ago, or like, for example, 9-11, you know, these were, uh, uh, if I could say, uh, traumatic event that caused collective trauma to the population, you know, and that collective trauma usually make collective uh, impact. And uh, for example, in, in our case, I think the population have reached decades ago uh, feeling and understanding that uh, uh, th this is not going to end until the occupation is over, you know. And at the same time, uh, people understand with the very massive responses from the Israeli army to whatever happens in Gaza, for example, like the Great March of Return, people were just dancing at the uh, uh, fence, you know, separation fence. They were just uh, sitting and demonstrating, they were they had nothing in their in their hands, and they were shot at, they were fired at, you know, uh, that massive and the very aggressive response from the Israeli army make people feel like you know, when we are uh, uh, unarmed, we are demonstrating, and that provoked such a huge response. Um, it, it says to the population something, you know, like it's not the fear on the Palestinian side. It's the fear on the uh, uh, occupation side also, at the Israeli side. And this comes to a conclusion that we all know, you know, historically, no occupation will remain forever, you know, okay? So so the collective, the massive collective impact is that there is a very uh, basic understanding that our life will not get easier as long as the occupation continues. And on the other hand, Occupation will not continue to be there forever. It doesn't happen that in any place that occupation will continue forever. However, the disappointment really is that uh, when when you know we we all uh, look into the news, we all saw how the international community have responded to the uh, Russian Ukrainian uh, 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 case, and um, we expect. Uh, you know, uh, a similar response, you know, because occupation is occupation. Uh, people's rights to democracy, people's rights to freedom, people's rights to live in dignity. It's not, uh, 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 let me say, it's not limited to one uh, population or to one geographical area or the other. This is a, a very basic human right that was documented, established, declared, in 1948, you know, more than seven decades ago. Before we start wrapping up, what do you think the biggest misconceptions 
that maybe people in in Western countries like the United States uh, or just people in the media have about what is happening in Gaza and just Palestine more generally? Because I, I know you've been interviewed in places like the BBC, and inevitably people will try to bring the conversation to, oh, let's talk about uh, Hamas. And it, it seems like there is this reticence to talk about Israel's actions at times. So what do you think the biggest misconceptions people have are, and, and how can the media better deal with uh, this issue, this crisis that we see in Gaza? You know, um, I think, first of all, the uh, first stories that were brought to the international media, the Western media, were the Israeli, uh, let me say, story, you know, their, their how to say, their narrative, uh, due to many reasons. One is that the Israeli media is more developed than the Palestinian one, and they are more connected to their uh, Western societies, you know. Uh, you can, if you go to anyone in Israel, if you ask him, where did you come from? They will tell you from New York, for example, or from this country or the other country. So they are at the human level. They have very good ties and connections to tell their narrative to the uh, Western society and to uh, um, um, provide that narrative. The narrative that we are under attack, the narrative that Palestinians are attacking us, okay? On the other hand, we Palestinians, only now in the last like three or four uh, years, with the social media, you know, that social media, if you are, if you can broadcast, you know, if you can just, uh, you don't know how to call it, you, you are watching something and you are streaming it live, you know, through your mobile phone. You become a reporter yourself and you start to tell the story that is really happening on the ground and to bring another narrative, which is the Christian narrative. This is one important aspect. Uh, the other is an important aspect is that uh, we established, that the PA was established in the year uh, uh, 1993 uh, uh, as a Palestinian authority. The agreement, the Oslo agree, agreement or accord that was uh, uh, supervised by the United States uh, says that within five years, there should be a two-state solution. One is a Palestinian state that sits side by side by the Israeli state. Uh, now that was in 1993. Today is 2022, which means, I don't know how many years, 29 years, something like that. And we are still uh, struggling. Our uh, West Bank, for example, areas, we have more settlements in the West Bank. Uh, Hamas took power by uh, 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 by force in 2007. We have a separation. Uh, they are now a de facto uh, 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 authority in Gaza. As a Palestinian, yes, that is not true. It's not correct. But uh, what did the blockade bring, you know, since 2007 until now? Did it bring a solution? The solution is to have another democratic elections in Palestine. We had one elections in 1994, we had or six. We had another one in 2006, and I think it's already more than 12 years overdue to have elections. The international community should provide more pressure on the Palestinian parties to have another elections rather than to impose a blockade in on Gaza that is only. Uh, 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 a violation of the basic human rights of people. It's a collective punishment. 
and it's a failure. It doesn't help anyone, remove anyone from any place, you know. It's just making the people suffer nothing more, nothing less. It's really important for me to point out too, I, I think one of the issues I have with um, the way we sometimes talk about Israel and Palestine in the U.S. is I think that people in a really dumb, reductive way try to take this all back to, oh, this is all about religion. Uh, and I don't think that's really the proper framing. I think this is about human rights. And I think people need to understand that, you know, there, there are Palestinian Muslims, there are Palestinian Christians. Uh, this is not just simply about religion. This is about human rights. Look, uh, hello? Yes, can you hear me? Oh. oh, yeah. Do you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you now. Sorry, I'll list you for, for a moment, you know. Okay. Uh, the technology in Gaza is a very, uh, you know, primitive one, if I could use the proper word. Uh, look, religion doesn't have anything to do with that. Uh, Palestine was always a place where Muslims, Jews, and Christians live. Uh, and I can give you many examples of how Israeli, uh, let me say, behaviors have affected negatively not only Palestinian Muslims, but also Palestinian Christians. And you can go back to things that happened in last May or June when they have really made it difficult for uh, Christians inside Israel just to uh, enjoy their, uh, how to say, uh, feast and celebrations. Uh, however, we are talking about a different thing with Israel. Israel is not a representation of uh, Jewish people. It's, a, it's Zionism, you know, and this is something that uh, uh, that is, uh, 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 we need to differentiate, you know. It's, it's more like an, an occupation, an occupying power. The struggle between a person who is occupier and a person who is under occupation, this should never be, uh, how to say, uh, mixed uh, with uh, religious uh, issues. It's very basic human right, regardless of the religion of any person. You know, doesn't matter if you are a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew. If you are under occupation, then you will struggle with the occupation. It doesn't matter if you are an occupier, to which religion you belong. The occupation is unjust and it should uh, uh, end. In closing, g given the situation in Gaza, um, and this has been going on for years now. We, we've seen this this occupation and just the the crises that have come out of it. What do you think? I, I want to try to end on a hopeful note. What what is the hope going forward? And what, are, are there success stories that you see um, in Gaza at times? Just individual successes. Um, how can we leave our listeners here on a hopeful note? Is I guess what I'm asking. Look, we always, uh, May 2021 uh, attacks were among the, uh, let me say, the most terrorizing uh, attacks during those 15 years. Uh, when the attack, that was, uh, I think, May 22nd last year, uh, the Ministry of Education, sorry, one more time, nothing to be done. This was okay. the last question I had anyways about yeah, the, the okay. hope going forward. I'll try to keep it uh, uh, short. Uh, whenever we look at our children, 
at the end of any escalation, you know. It's time to go for school, for example, find every child, trying his best, collecting whatever he has from stationery, and wearing his clothes and going to the school. This is something that we saw in 2014 when the escalation ended, the offensive ended. We thought uh, of massive psychological implications. However, most of the children managed to go back to schools. In our practice, at our clinical practice, we see some of the children whose academic performance have deteriorated, who are bedwetting or having some problems with sleep. It's a joy to us when we see those children recovering, when we see their grades coming up again, when they see their smiles happening again, and when they when we see their parents getting some uh, uh, relief that the children are back to their normal life. We are trying our best to help our society. We are trying our best to make those children and to keep them as a hope for our future. We do that with our best, how to say, and possible efforts. And we also need help from the international community, help to say enough to the blockade, help to say stop to the occupation, and help to say that those children deserve to live in peace and dignity like the other children of the world. Well, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners uh, keep up with the work you're doing and the work of the Gaza Mental uh, Gaza Community Mental Health Program? And um, is there any way they can support your efforts? Well, I, I think they can um, uh, visit our website, gcmhp.ps. Uh, there is also a, a, a Facebook uh, page. And if they are interested in helping, they can just uh, uh, write uh, some email to our uh, email, info at gcmhp.ps, and we can tell them how they can provide. But we think that uh, it's very important also that they try to influence others by bringing uh, the Palestinian case to their attention, which is very important. Thank you again, Yasser Abujama, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you very much. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you found my conversation with Dr. Yasser Abu Jaima Lightning, and that you'll consider looking at the work being done today by the Gaza Community Mental Health Program. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I should be posting some more bonus content for my Patreon supporters later this week. And with that being said, until next time, You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. 
But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.